Well, great to see you today. Glad that you're here with us this morning, and uh, we are going to uh, begin a new series of messages in Philippians. But before we get to Philippians, there's a couple of other passages I want you to uh, I want you to turn to. I'll give you to give them to you in just a moment. But I want to start with this question today: How do you measure a person's Christian life? We may say, you know, so-and-so is a pretty good Christian, uh, or we may say so-and-so is a really weak Christian, uh, beating, are they carnal, are they dedicated, or whatever. But, but how, how do we measure those things? Often folks will measure a person's spiritual life by how nice that person happens to be. And while politeness is a wonderful thing, as is neighborliness or helpfulness, it doesn't necessarily mean that a person is a good Christian or even a Christian at all. Jesus said even the people of the world help each other and are nice to each other, hoping to get something in return. So we need to go beyond that, and uh, someone says, well, perhaps we can measure spiritual quality by a person's actions or words. Uh, Do their words and their actions line up? Uh, If we say we love God, do we actually live that way? That's probably a better measurement. You know, the, uh, the writer James in the New Testament said that we show our faith by our works. Faith without works is a dead faith. Uh, James said, living faith produces something. Jesus said we would be known by our fruit, that is, what our lives produce. Solomon said 3,000 years ago, even a child is known by his doings. So, so we recognize people by what they are, by how they live, by how they relate to others. We look at their choices, we look at their decisions, we measure their spiritual lives by seeing if their words and their actions line up. Uh, there, there is value in that observation and that, that measurement, but I want to suggest to you, even this morning, going even one step beyond that, one step deeper. There's an issue of the heart that we all have to consider. And see, our, our choices, all of our choices, all of our decisions, all flow from our hearts. So I believe that it is worthwhile to to measure the quality of our Christian life by examining what we love. What we love reveals what's in our hearts. And I want to begin with you today looking at the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 15. Just a couple of verses there that I think are very important in relation to this question, figuring out what it is that we love. Jesus is having a little controversy in Matthew 15 with the Pharisees, which was certainly not the first time or the last time. Uh, but as, he, as Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, basically telling them they are hypocritical for what they're doing, but there's just, he makes a very interesting statement in verse 7 and verse 8 and verse 9. Matthew 15, verse 7, 8 and 9. Jesus said to the Pharisees, hypocrites... Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Interesting thoughts. He said, Isaiah prophesied about you, but notice he says in verse 8, They draw near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, But their heart is far from me. And he says they are worshiping me in vain. That is, it's empty. The way they're worshiping me is empty. 
because they have created this whole system of, of commandments of men that are not Bible doctrines. So he says, they're drawing near to me with their mouth and they're honoring me with what they say, but their heart is a million miles away. So according to Jesus, it is apparently possible to know the right things and to know the right things to say, but still have a heart that's a long way from God. That's why when we examine our hearts before the Lord, we have to ask ourselves, what do I love? What gives me joy? What do I delight in? What am I glad about? What, what gives me contentment and satisfaction? You know, it's been said by many people that, that it is our duty to serve God. And that's true. That's correct. Moses wrote, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Uh, the, the, Samuel the prophet said, you should serve God in truth with all your heart. But, but, but do you know that it is not only our duty to serve God if we know Him as our Savior, it is our duty to serve with joy. We're not only supposed to serve God, we're supposed to take pleasure in it. Now that doesn't mean that every single detail of our service for Christ is always fun and uplifting and exciting, because sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just, you just have to do what you know is right, regardless of what joy you happen to be feeling at that moment. And, but of course, you can't, you can't just sit around waiting for an uplifting feeling before you decide to serve. We can't wait for our emotions to motivate us, but when we do the right things, then the right feelings will follow. But if our focus is right and our attitude is right, then our service for Christ will be meaningful and it'll be satisfying. There will be contentment in the Lord Jesus. Our service for Christ will ultimately bring us joy. And there's another very interesting passage I want to show you as we introduce our series today, and that's back in the book of Deuteronomy and chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. The passage here in Deuteronomy 28, relatively well known to Old Testament students, because there's a long, long list and description that Moses gives the children of Israel about blessings and cursings. If you do this and this and this and this and this and this, he says, there'll be great blessings that come to you. If you do these other things, there will be cursings that will come to you. And, and, and so it, it becomes a very uh, a fairly well-known passage for Old Testament Bible students to take a look at. Moses is getting near the end of his life. He passes away in our text just a few chapters later. He's giving this final address to the children of Israel. But there's a fascinating thing that he says here in the middle of, of, of Deuteronomy chapter 28. And we're going to begin to read in verse 45. Verse 45. I know you're at the beginning of the chapter. Just flip a page over, verse 45. Long chapter, the 60, over 60 verses. But he says in verse 45, Moreover, all these curses, the ones he's just listed before, shall come upon you and pursue and overtake you until you are destroyed, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. And they shall be upon you for a sign and a wonder on your descendants forever. And I want to just pause for just a moment there. Don't miss that progression that Moses is saying. He said, if you don't obey the voice of the Lord your God, he said, all these curses will come upon you. 
he says, and pursue you and overtake you. Interesting word pictures there. It isn't just, I do something bad and wham, this curse comes, pow. No, I said it's going to creep up on you. It's going to be chasing you. Eventually it's going to overtake you. Because when we sin, when we don't deal with sin in our lives, it ultimately chases us down, it hunts us down, it hounds us, it actually overtakes us. may take months, may take years. But Moses says these curses will come upon you, they're going to pursue you, they're going to overtake you until you're wiped out because you didn't obey the voice of the Lord. And then verse 47, look what he says. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything, therefore you will serve your enemies. Interesting food for thought there. Moses says, if we don't serve the Lord with joy and a glad heart for all that he's done for us, it leads to terrible consequences. Moses told the nation of Israel, you don't enjoy serving me, God says, okay, you can go serve your enemies. You can serve me, you can serve your enemies. Take your choice. Not, not a good choice, obviously. So, but, 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 but he said, you, you, you did not serve the Lord with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. And, and so you've got these, these, these wonderful passages of Scripture that tell us not just that we serve God, but we should do so with joy, with gladness. It should be a privilege to us. We should have the, the, the focus, the, the idea in, in, in life that we are going to do the will of God, and it's going to be something that gives us pleasure. Let me read just a list of verses to you. You won't take time to, to take, don't need to take the time to turn to them, but just listen to these. Psalm 100, verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 90. Satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may be glad all our days. Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Jesus said in John 15, I have spoken to you so that your joy may be, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Hebrews 12, 2 says Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. When Jesus talked about faithful servants, he said, when a faithful servant, uh, when the master returns, he will say, the master will say to them, enter into the joy of your Lord. James, that we just talked about a moment ago, said, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, I am sorrowful yet always rejoicing. The Apostle Paul wrote, we're going to see in Philippians here in a few more weeks, Rejoice in the Lord always. So the, so the, the Bible is filled with instruction to, for us to measure the quality of our spiritual walk by what we love, by what gives us satisfaction and fulfillment. Serving the Lord should be at the top of our list. Now we're beginning a series this week, as I mentioned a moment ago in the book of Philippians. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about joy throughout his letter. 
And we're going to be emphasizing that theme as we study his uh, little letter to the church in Philippi. So if you would like to turn to Philippians chapter 1, we are going to look today at the first eight verses. And we'll be in Philippians for many weeks to come throughout our summer months. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to read the first eight verses. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all, with the affection of Jesus Christ. When the Bible speaks of joy, it's not referring to an attitude that depends on our circumstances. We can have a sense of biblical joy regardless of our circumstances because joy is based on the confidence that no matter what's going on in our lives, everything is okay between me and the Lord. No matter what trial, what heartache, what disappointment, what rejection, whatever challenge we may be facing, we know we are safe in the arms of God's grace and our eternal well-being is secured by the Lord Jesus. So we can have joy regardless of the circumstances. And you know the Apostle Paul was the perfect picture of this. If you trace his ministry through the book of Acts, it would take us a couple of hours to do that, but if you were to trace his ministry through the, through the book of Acts, you, you see that right after he came to Christ, he had to escape Damascus at night because of death threats against him. He was stoned and left for dead in a little town called Lystra. He was beaten up and thrown in jail in Philippi. He had to leave Thessalonica after a riot erupted because of his preaching. He was ridiculed by philosophers in Athens. He was dragged in front of a Roman court in Corinth. He was hounded from city to city by Jews who hated him and, and hated him and, and the message of Jesus he was preaching. There was a Gentile riot in Ephesus over his ministry. He was shipwrecked on his way to Rome for his trial. And as he writes this letter to the Philippian church, he's been under house arrest for nearly two years in Rome waiting for his trial. And yet he says, I thank God on every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy. And you're in my heart. I greatly long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. <laughs> that's, that's amazing biblical joy. Not dependent on his life circumstances. But his, his confidence was anchored in his relationship to Jesus Christ. 
So whether he's getting beat up and thrown in jail or shipwrecked and floating around in the ocean for, for, a, di- for a night and a day, and whether he's being bitten by snakes or beaten with rods or thrown in jail or sitting around chained to a Roman soldier for two years, waiting for his trial date to come up, he still has joy. Because joy was not based on his current circumstances. Joy is based and anchored in his relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul starts his letter there in verse 1. He, he identifies himself and Timothy as bond servants of Jesus Christ. The word is doulos in the Greek text, a doulos of Jesus Christ. And that is a specific word, means a slave who has willingly agreed to serve his master for life. That's why he calls him a bond servant or a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Back in the Old Testament, if a slave, and sometimes people were sold for five years to pay off a debt. You worked for a guy as a slave for five years or ten years or whatever, or you were, you were fulfilling some kind of a contract. And, and after he had served his time, and, and it came to the place he could be set free, if he had been treated so well that he had, been, he had grown to love his master, he could agree to serve that master for the rest of his life. And if he did agree, the master would bore a hole in the slave's ear, kind of marking him as belonging to him for the rest of his life. He's like, who would do that? Well, apparently a lot of people did. Part of the law of Moses, you can read about it, it's in Exodus chapter 21, verses 5 and 6. It explains what, what that could be. And that, that slave would be basically binding himself, although he was free. He was binding himself to that master for the rest of his life. Paul takes that same word picture when he uses this word doulos or the bond slave of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I am a slave of Jesus Christ who has bound myself to my master for life. I am a doulos of Christ. And then he addresses his letter to the saints, the holy ones. So we spoke about in our first hour today, everyone who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior is called a saint in the New Testament, uh, not necessarily some higher class of Christian. Every person who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior, according to the Scripture, has been made holy by Christ, which is what the word saint means, a holy one. Made holy by Christ, not by our works, uh, along with, he says, the bishops and the deacons. And I think most of you have been around our church enough, you know when we use the term uh, the terms bishop, pastor, and elder are all interchangeable terms in the New Testament. The word bishop literally means overseer, one who has administrative duties. Uh, the word elder comes from the Old Testament. It is a respected position of leadership and spiritual authority. The word pastor means someone who feeds and guides as a shepherd, and they, they are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. So the bishop, pastors, elders, and the deacons, those who assist them, who minister, they serve in practical matters, assisting the bishops, elders, pastors. That's who he's addressing this to. And then in these next verses, he gives them this great thought in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A very common New Testament greeting 
where people would see one another and they'd give each other a big hug and grace and peace to you, my brother. Grace and peace to you, my sister. They would say that was a, because, of course, you didn't have telephones, you didn't have internet, you didn't have all that kind of, sometimes you'd go for days, maybe weeks, without seeing some of your brothers and sisters in Christ. You would always greet them with a, with, 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 with a, with a hug and a grace and peace to you, my, my brothers. Uh, that was wanting the grace of God and the peace of God uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ to be evident in their lives. <clears throat> but in starting in verse 3 up through verse 8 that we're going to focus our time on here this morning, Paul describes five different elements of joy, all related to his relationship with the Philippians. You see, true biblical joy is not only a reflection of our, excuse me, our relationship to the Lord Jesus, it's also a reflection of our relationship and our service to our fellow followers of Christ. The first element of joy, the joy of remembering. Verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Paul visited Philippi on his second missionary journey, as we often call it, his evangelistic church planting journeys throughout the Roman Empire. He took three of those uh, church planting journeys as he would preach the gospel and establish churches. He visited Philippi on his second journey. You may remember the story from the book of Acts. Paul had led to Christ a businesswoman named Lydia. She was called a seller of purple. It was a, it was a very, uh, very popular color, and she was apparently had this business, and she would sell purple-dyed clothing. Uh, he had led her to Christ. Uh, he had also freed a young slave girl from the bondage of demon possession, and that so infuriated the little slave girl's owners that Paul and Silas were beaten up and thrown into jail, thus leading to the very famous story that most of you will re- remember as I tell you in Acts 16, that Paul and Silas got beaten, thrown in jail, their p- feet put in stocks, very, very uncomfortable, in fact, an incredibly miserable circumstance physically. And yet Paul and Silas are singing in the jail at midnight. There are no lights, totally dark, beaten feet in the stocks, in this incredibly miserable circumstance, and yet they're singing at midnight. And God caused an earthquake, it shook all the chains off, all their chains fell off, all the doors came open, and the jailer was about to commit suicide, thinking that everybody had escaped, which would mean his death as, as a punishment. Paul calls out to him, and he says, Don't kill yourself. We're all here, he says. And so the jailer calls for a light, calls for a torch, and he comes into the jail cell where Paul and Silas are, and he falls down at the feet of Paul and Silas, and he utters those now famous, off-quoted words, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He wasn't talking about his physical life. Nobody had escaped. He was safe. When he said, what must I do to be saved? I mean, he knew why Paul and Silas were in his jail. And he had been listening to Paul and Silas sing. And when he says, falls down at their feet, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul also knew what he, was, what he meant. And he said to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. All of that happened in Philippi. And so Paul says, I thank God when I think about you. I thank God when I remember all that God did among you, all that God did with all of us, all of your fellowship in the gospel. I have joy in remembering. 
He also, secondly, had the, the joy of intercession. He says, always in prayer, in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. Now, when we use the word intercession, that is praying for someone else. A lot of times when we pray, we're praying for us. And nothing inherently wrong with that. Uh, We pray regarding our own lives, our own circumstance. That's often called supplication, meaning pleading with God for a personal need. Intercession is remembering somebody else's need and pleading with God on behalf of someone else. The Holy Spirit, Romans 8 tells us, intercedes for us when we pray. And we are to intercede for the needs and the trials of other people. Paul poured out his heart for his friends in Philippi, and he says, I love it. In in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. He was filled with joy to have the opportunity to intercede, to pray for them. And there's a third element of joy, the joy of fellowship. He said, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, from the very first day when Lydia came to Christ, when Paul and Silas showed up in Philippi, and not long after the Philippian jailer and his whole household, Acts 16 says, all came to Christ. They were the first foundation stones of the church there. And this this word translated fellowship just means to participate together, to commune together, that there's fellowship in faith. There's fellowship in prayer. There's fellowship in seeing answers to prayer. There's there's fellowship in serving together. There's there's fellowship in spiritual growth together. There's fellowship in standing together in spiritual battles. Your brothers and sisters in Christ that you have experiences the challenge of life and ministry with, they are a special joy. I can assure you of that. I've been now in some kind of full-time ministry for over four decades and looking back over them I got I got some great memories I've got some wonderful memories of things God has done Uh, it is a joy to pray for other people it is a joy to fellowship together in the things of God and to stand together in, in in spiritual battles it's wonderful but then the fourth joy the joy of confidence this is one of the well-known verses in Philippians, verse 6. It says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. See, Paul is joyful because he has confidence that God is going to do his work in the hearts and lives of his friends. Paul cannot be there with him. He's in prison. He's writing this letter from prison. He's expecting that he may soon be martyred. Actually, God spared him at this time, and he was released, only to be rearrested a few years later, and then beheaded for Christ. But Paul is joyful in knowing that God will never leave them, God will never forsake them. He opened their eyes, he brought them to faith in Christ. Excuse me. He opened their eyes, he brought them to faith in Christ, he's going to complete or perfect everything that he has planned for them. And we know from other New Testament writings that that God's intention for us is to be Christ-like, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, as Peter expressed it. We're going to receive new bodies, just like the resurrection body of the Lord Jesus. We're going to be in the presence of the Lord for all of eternity. 
And as Paul looks at this life and all of its trials, and as he looks at his Philippian friends, he says, God started his work in you, and he will never give up on you. He will complete everything he started, and one day we will all be together in heaven with our Savior, forgiven and complete in our sanctification, free from the presence of sin, released from our body of sin, perfect and holy before the Lord in every way, and together in his presence. That knowledge, Paul says, that truth gives me incredible joy. Many years ago, when Carol's dad went home to be with the Lord, he was in the middle of adding a room onto his house. His wife had wanted to enclose their patio on their house, make it into an enclosed room. He, he was diligently working on that. He had most of it done when he had a stroke one Saturday morning and went to be with the Lord a few years later. A few days later, I'm sorry. A few days later. When we got there uh, to their house... We walked out into the room he was working on, walked out into, into, into the enclosure, and there were a bunch of his tools laid out on the floor there, and his hat was there, lying there where he had been working. He never left his tools in a jumble. Everything was always very organized, except in his toolbox. That was not organized. But everything else was very organized when he was working on it. All the tools were laid out there. The hat was there. And in the room, probably 75, 80% completed. And I thought, you know what? One day, the same thing is going to happen with all of us. Whatever we were working on will be left right where we were on our last day. And as Paul writes this letter, he knew that his day was not very far away and his spiritual children would be left without him. But he also knew that God has no unfinished work. His word never comes back empty, as Isaiah 55 tells us. It always accomplishes what he sends it out to do. So when Paul writes, I am confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's saying we may not accomplish everything that we might like to do in this life, but God has no unfinished work. What a joy to know that. No one knows when our last day is on this earth. I know all of you here today, you've got some prayer requests for your children. Maybe you got some prayer requests for your grandchildren. Maybe you got some prayer requests for some friends. Maybe you got some things you'd like to accomplish for God in your life. Maybe you'll make it, maybe you won't. Maybe you'll get the job done, maybe you won't get the job done. But you know what? God always gets the job done. God always does everything that he sets out to do. And so Paul says, here I am sitting in prison. In this actually, it was a, he was under house arrest. I'm chained to a Roman guard. I'm sitting here writing this letter, and I'm saying, I am confident of this very thing, that even though I'm stuck here and I might be dead soon, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. He will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. And in the last joy, the, 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 joy or the, the joy of love, Paul loved the Philippians because they stood with him through all the trials of ministry. When he was in prison, when he was in court, when he was preaching, when he was serving, they were there with him. We're going to see later on in the book that the reason why Paul is writing this letter, he's responding to a gift that the Philippian church had sent to him for his ministry support. Even though he was in prison, 
Even though they were struggling financially themselves. Paul says, you stood with me all the way. That's what he says here in verse, in verse 7. It's right for me to think this of you all. I have put you in my heart. Because in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. He says, you, you, you stood with me when I was in chains. You stood with me when I went to court to defend myself. You stood with me as I, as I was trying to confirm the gospel and preach the gospel. You've been with me every step of the way. And he said, so, so I long to see you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. Remembering intercession, fellowship, confidence, love, all these elements of Biblical joy are focused on other people. You see, a, a focus on self never brings us to a place of biblical joy. What do you love? What do you delight in? What gives you contentment and satisfaction? Is it serving the Lord Jesus? Let me close with one final verse. 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. Samuel is giving a coronation address, you might call it. He is speaking at the, uh, at the coronation of Saul, King Saul, the first king of Israel. And as, and as Samuel kind of makes the transition, he was the last of the prophets to lead the people, the last of the judges to lead the people. He's now turning the reins over to, to the king, the first king of Israel, Saul. And in, in, in a part of his address, as he, as he kind of winds up his thoughts, I want to just read verse 23 and 24. And if you are into highlighting or Bible underlining or you want to memorize some great verses, these two verses are fabulous verses that I would encourage you to become very, very familiar with. These are the words of Samuel, verse 23 of 1 Samuel 12. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. And this is the good and right way. He says, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. What a great, what a great verse. The good and right way says, fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. What do you love? What do you delight in? What gives you contentment and satisfaction? Is it serving the Lord Jesus Christ? I pray that it is. Let's pray. Lord, we live in a topsy-turvy, mixed-up world. A lot of people chasing happiness, but they don't really have joy. Because their happiness is all wrapped up in their circumstances. Whereas our joy can be totally founded and grounded in our relationship with Jesus Christ. What a tremendous testimony the Apostle Paul left with us. All the troubles and trials and heartaches and headaches and sufferings he went through. And yet still writing to, to the Philippians with joy in what he's remembering about them and what he's praying for about them. What a great testimony for us, Lord. Help us to live a life filled with the joy of the Lord Jesus.
We pray in His holy name. Amen.